0: Through the book of Luke, and today you're gonna see a definitive showdown between Jesus and some of the biggest forms of deception that are still raging in our world today. You see, this brief encounter between Jesus and a crippled woman brings into sharp focus three of the biggest obstacles that still keep us from coming to christ and it's no accident where and when this showdown takes place either jesus chose to do it on the sabbath their most important day and in the synagogue their most important place for clarifying everything that mattered most about god And how you could be right with him. Hope you realize there's a difference between the temple and the synagogue. Temple, there's one of them. It was in Jerusalem. Not a lot of chatter or conversation there. You made sacrifices there. The synagogue, these were all over the land. And this is where teaching was done. This is where people went to learn what they should think and know about God. What was most important. And here's what's also worth noting. You realize where we are in the book of Luke now? We're just months away from his death on the cross. And so this is his last recorded opportunity to speak in a synagogue. What would he choose to do? What would he choose to say on his last visit to the place they look to to know what they should know about God? Well, let's find out. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. Luke 13, verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, He called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath said to the people, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on one of those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. Oh, what does Jesus choose to confront? What does he choose to confront on his final visit to what was for them in that day the very hub and heart of religious fervor and activity, as well as what they thought was the most trustworthy place where you could be instructed on what to know about God and how to be right with him. Number one. Oh, number one, Jesus dismantles the deception of achieving God's favor on your own. Look at verse 10. Look at what I'm talking about. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath day. Now, right now, if you're wondering, Brad, how did you get that? First point from that verse, because it doesn't say what he was teaching. Well, if you're thinking that right now, it's only because you're not as aware as you should be of what he taught consistently and as often as he could, especially if he was in a synagogue setting. Go back through the Gospels and you'll find it's no accident. It's not like, oops, I forgot that was the Sabbath. He consistently rocked their world on the Sabbath. In a synagogue. He did it all the time. Because there was something he was out to dismantle and explode that is so fixed in us. What was that? I'll tell you what it was. That the kingdom of God has come. And salvation is now found in his son. You'll see it over and over. The kingdom of God has come. Salvation is in God's son. Not the law, not your good works, and not anything you're trying to do for God. It's what God is now doing for you in his son. That's his message over and over and over and over. If you skim back through the book of Luke, you'll see that he always preached about the kingdom of God. In fact, the kingdom of God is mentioned 31 times in the book of Luke. And it's always about God's kingdom and how you could become a part of that kingdom. Look at me. Only by confessing Jesus as the Messiah, the sent one, the Lord, your Savior. 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 And you'll see, you'll see Jesus. Every time he spoke and every time he did something, it drew a line in the sand. Everybody didn't love him. You realize that? As our world hates us, you're not the first to be hated. He was constantly drawing a line in the sand. You either loved him or hated him. There wasn't much middle ground. You see it all through the gospels. While this message was incredible good news to those who were broken and the most outcast in that day, Think about it, woman thrown down in front of him, caught in adultery. Woman at the well who's had four husbands now living with a man. Woman who slipped into a party and anointed his feet with oil that in their mind, she's a known sinner in the community. Tax collectors and the worst of the worst as he ate with them. Those who were broken and considered outcast found his message and his person incredible good news. But not everybody. Everybody. Not everybody. Oh, as he did what he did and said what he said, it always ignited, always, a firestorm of hostility from those who were already entrenched in their own self-righteousness and man-made religion. You realize good news is only good news if you think you need it. Huh? Right, someone's always trying to sell you something and you find yourself thinking, I don't need it. Please go away. It's not good news if you don't think you need it. So here's what you gotta understand. Human beings are never neutral. They're already always busy doing already what they think they need to do to be right with God. Guess why? Because we're not golden retrievers and aardvarks or anteaters or houseplants. We're people created in his image. And so we have this awareness. There's more than right here, right now. I think there's actually a God. I think there's a sense of right and wrong. And there's something I need to be doing to be right with this creator. We're already doing something. And so this is not good news to someone already doing something. People don't like what they've put in place being turned on its head and being dismantled. To be, he, he disrupted systems that already existed. He didn't come into a world of neutrality where people were like, oh my goodness, this is such good news. We've never thought that there's a God. We've never thought of how to be right with God. They'd already thought a lot. And his message dismantled their number one thought. Chapter four. I preached a whole sermon on it. Chapter four of Luke, his very first synagogue sermon. You remember it, where it says he took the scroll. He was invited to be a speaker, and he found that place in Isaiah that said, "I've come to set the liber- the captives free." Da 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 And then he says, he sits down. Every eye is fixed on him. He says, "This scripture has now been fulfilled in." your hearing. In other words, I am here. I am it. And they said, Oh no. Chapter four, it says they ran him out of the synagogue and tried to throw him off a cliff. That's how well the message went. I've had some, I've had some bad sermons. I've gotten some emails, but praise God, no one's rushed the stage and shoved me down into gunpowder Creek. Oh my goodness, his very first synagogue sermon went that well. Chapter six, in the synagogue, they were filled with rage and thought about how, what they could do to him. And in chapter 11, the further we move along, they actually began to plot and plan, how could we catch him in his words and take him down? They were constantly testing him and trying to trick him, but it never worked. This message, oh, they were furious. Lots of people didn't want to hear this. Why would people be so opposed to such good news? I'll tell you why. This might surprise some of you. Here's what you need to understand, and the Bible teaches this. The human heart actually hates this message of grace. You're like, what? I think the message of grace is amazing. If you're sitting here right now and you think the message of grace is amazing, that's because God's spirit already did a work in you because the message of grace travels with a cluster of other biblical truths. You ready? It's only amazing to you when you also begin to own and acknowledge your true condition of helpless, hopeless sinner who can do nothing to save Yourself, Those truths travel with grace. Oh, we don't like helpless. We don't like hopeless. We don't like being called sinners. I still get emails from people in our church family. You keep calling us sinners. My wife said if you do that one more time, she's going to smack you. I'm going to do it forever till I drop dead because the Bible does it. We are sinners and if you don't own it, grace isn't amazing. Oh. We don't like helpless. We don't like hopeless. We don't like being called sinners. And stay with me, we can't stand the thought of not being able to do something about it for ourselves. Woo! Listen to me. Oh, yes, grace is amazing. But this amazing grace only gets embraced after. You humble yourself and own your true condition before God and say, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Have mercy on me, oh God. I could never do anything to make myself right with you. Now grace is amazing. But oh, it takes a work of God by his spirit and grace to open your eyes to even see that. that's what was going on then. Guess what? It's what's going on now. It's what's still going on now. They thought they could please God by trying hard to be good and by working hard to perform the right ceremonies and religious practices, stay with me, that they thought put them way ahead of other people and earn them favor with God. And so the life and ministry of Jesus exploded onto the scene like a spiritual wrecking ball that began to dismantle everything they'd been working so hard to establish and promote. He was a wrecking ball. I tell you all the time, Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. There was tons of that. Human beings generate religion left and right. Religion can be spelled this way, D-O. What's the list of what I need to do to be right with God? That's religion. Christianity and the good news of the gospel and the Bible itself is spelled D-O. Help me. N-E. It's all about what Christ, God's son, has done for us. That you could never do for yourself. Categorically different. Categorically different. He didn't come to start a new religion. He came to be a savior. And that's radically different. Which is why he went around saying the things he did. Like you think you're spiritually rich but you're actually bankrupt and in desperate need of a savior. You think that you are clothed in a robe of righteousness of your own good works before God, but you're actually naked and destitute before a holy God. You think you are living in freedom, but you're actually still in bondage to sin and Satan right now. You realize no human being is neutral I might choose to follow Satan. I might choose to follow Jesus. and God, we're born, Bible teaches this, slaves to Satan is your father until you declare Jesus as your Lord. You're like, what? Yeah, just read your Bible. You're not neutral. You're not neutral. That's why he went around saying, you think you are in freedom? You're actually in bondage right now to sin and Satan. He's your father He'd say, you think you have spiritual eyes to see and you think you're pointing the way to others and helping them? You are blind and you are actually stumbling around and groping and pushing others onto your same path of destruction. He used to say, you are the blind leading the blind. Now, consider why they hated him. No one likes to hear that. Oh, I thought I had a robe of my own works of right. No, you're naked. I thought I was the one that sees and points the way. Nope, you're blind. Oh, I thought I was rich spiritually. Nope, you're bankrupt. Oh, I thought I was living in freedom, making real choices, doing the right thing. Nope, you're in bondage to Satan. This message, this message created a firestorm of hostility from those who were already busy establishing and promoting their own righteousness. Listen to me, this heart condition of trying to be good and achieve favor with God Wasn't just a problem back then. It is a universal, cross-cultural, pervasive human condition that we're born with. Nobody has to teach you this. It's your default setting. Even as I interact with people and I try to talk to people all the time, I had an Uber driver that I forget what country he was from, but as I asked him questions, he said, he's a Buddhist. I know something about Buddhism. So I started to dig in and ask the particular questions about Buddhism. And as he's driving, he's in his late twenties. He finally admitted, I actually don't, it became clear. I know more about Buddhism than he does. (laughs) He finally just said, I don't really practice or do anything that you're supposed to do. I just think, and then he said what everybody thinks. You try to do good things, you try to treat people right, and you try to make a difference in the world. You don't have to be Buddhist to say that, see? It's a universal, cross-cultural, pervasive human condition that we're born with. Just last week, I was on a flight, and I got bumped to first class because there was space, which meant I was seated next to someone very successful and actually delightful to talk to. We talked nonstop for an hour and a half. We started with the Bengals, which is fun to talk about now. We talked about the Bengals. We talked about his business. We talked about leadership. He's a leader, big time leader, doing great training teams. We talked about core values in a business. We talked about training people and equipping people and All kinds of things I could relate to. And I just kept asking questions. And so we moved on to his son's Tesla. His wife's PhD in forensic psychology. And their love for breeding and selling Labrador retrievers. And I even got to see some amazing, beautiful, cute puppies. (laughs) Big fun. I mean, we had an hour of friendly, animated conversation. And so I moved it in a spiritual direction. When I asked... Just real casual. Hey, you got any thoughts about God or the afterlife? He did. He actually said, you know what? I believe in God, and I believe in the afterlife. And he even went on to say, though he had not been active in church, he said, oh, I got saved years ago at a Billy Graham crusade. Well, hallelujah. Hallelujah. A friend had invited him. He attended. And when they sang, just as I am over and over forever, he went forward, did that thing you're supposed to do and got saved. Now, what do you think I did next? I didn't just say, well, brother, it'll be good to see you in the kingdom. I did not. I did not punt on my favorite question. Please tell me, you know, my favorite question. I went with my favorite question anyway, despite, quote, he got saved. I said, that's great. Then let me ask you, if this plane crashes, and we die in a fiery ball of, no, I I don't, screaming in agony with airplane fuel, no, I just said, and we die, and we stand before God, which we will, and he asks you, so why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? he sat silent he said wow that's a really good question i don't know i try to be good i try to treat people right and make a difference in this world i guess something along those lines and especially mama's right now here's what i want you to understand Yes, God can save your child in Children's Sunday School when they're, someone says, raise your hand if you want to ask Jesus in your heart. God can save someone at youth camp. God can save someone at a Billy Graham crusade. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Do hear me telling you the fact that your child raised their hand or the fact that your child walked the dusty trail at youth camp or the fact that your child does any of those things doesn't mean they're born again. Do you understand that? That's a That's a work. That's a work. You say, well, I finally did what everyone says to do. I went forward. Now I know I'm okay. No, you might not be okay. If you don't know that it's Jesus. So when it looked like he had said everything he could think to say. I leaned over and a little quieter. I said, you do realize you didn't mention Jesus anywhere in your answer. And he said, oh, yes, yes, yes. I need to proclaim him more. I thought, I don't think proclaiming him is your biggest problem. I don't think you know him. And when you don't know him, of course you don't. Proclaim him. And so I said, You know what? I think the most important question you could wrestle with is Who is Jesus? And what did he do for us? And then I shared the gospel how Jesus took on flesh and came into our world and fully kept God's law, the only one who ever perfectly kept God's law. And then when he died on the cross, it was not the things got out of hand and it was not for any sin of his own, but in that moment, our sin was placed on him and God the Father poured out on him his punishment and wrath against sin instead of us so that now anyone who puts their faith in Jesus and believes he is who he says he is and that he did what the scriptures proclaim he did can be forgiven and clean and go to heaven. I shared the gospel. And what became clear about where he really was was because I asked that clarifying question. I didn't just think, oh, I hear mother say, well, I know he's a Christian, he lives like a hellion, but I know he's a Christian. I was there when he prayed his prayer on the bed and he cried, mama, please stop. Don't hear me saying you have to earn your way to heaven. Do hear me saying, if you know him, there ought to be some fruits of knowing him. The Bible does say, Yeah, we can't see hearts. You'll know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their fruit. If there's no appetite for the things of God, no desire to follow Jesus Christ, no fruit of the spirit, there might just be no spiritual life. The best thing you could do for your precious so-and-so is pray that almighty God would save him. And do not text him, praise God we know you're not going to hell because you got saved when you're seven. Stop saying that. That may cause them to never consider the the terrible condition that they're in. Do you understand? You don't want that son or daughter to have the assurance of mama. They need the assurance of the Holy Spirit by God's grace that they're right with God through his son, Jesus Christ. But let me show you something else Jesus confronts head on in this passage. Number two, he demonstrates his power to free us from bondage to Satan. Look at verse 11 and 12. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Jesus is the master of the moment. You'll see it all through the Gospels. And so he uses this woman to put on display the fact that he has power over Satan and spiritual forces of darkness that sometimes cripple us physically. So don't make a mistake in thinking anyone that has a disability It's demonic. The Bible doesn't teach that. But the Bible shows us instances that, yes, someone was deaf or someone was mute or, or she's bent over and it is spiritual forces of darkness. There are times that demonic forces cripple us physically. But guess what? Demonic forces cripple us spiritually continually and keep us in bondage. We are born in bondage to darkness and spiritual forces until the day you look to Christ and cry out to him as your Lord and Savior. He wants to put on display something greater. And so here's what I want you to get. It's interesting how this goes down in verse 12. It's not like so many other encounters We've got tons of places in the Bible where people come to Jesus, right? Where people shout out, oh, son of David, heal me. Open my eyes. We've got places where the woman reaches in the crowd and thinks, if I just touch. And he often turns around and says, your, what has made you well? Faith. Your faith. Guess what? We also have places, praise God, because he's sovereign, where it mentions nothing about what they did and their faith. It's his goodness to move in our direction what he does. This is one of those instances. This encounter in verse 12 shows that Jesus is the one who saw her. Right? She didn't come up to him. In fact, he stopped in the middle of his teaching. Saw her. And folks, it is most likely that he saw her hunched over and hovering in the back of the synagogue. Because not only was she a woman, but she would have been considered a total out... That was not a kind day for disabilities. Not like we have today. They had a thinking that if you're like that, you did something fundamentally wrong to be born that way. You are the worst of sinners. She was not only a woman, but she was a total outcast. So it's likely she was hovering against the back wall in the shadows, hunched over. He saw her. He called her to him. And then he set her free it doesn't record her saying a word it doesn't record her exercising faith he set her free by the power of his word when he said woman you are freed from your disability he didn't and notice he didn't say you're healed and he didn't say you're clean he chooses his word, words carefully, depending on the situation. Remember when he touched the leper, he chose to say, you're clean. Why? Because they were so aware of, I am unclean. Un- they had to walk around saying, unclean, unclean. You were supposed to shout it if anyone got near you. How awful would that be? That's why he said, you're clean. In this instance, she's bent over and twisted by the power of Satan. And what he wants to emphasize is you have been set free. You're freed. You are freed. In fact, he uses a Greek word that means to lose something, to release something, so that it can be set free. Jesus has the power to set us free from the bondage of Satan that twists our lives in all sorts of miserable ways and keeps us bent over In ways that are painful to us and destructive to us and others. And so you can imagine. It doesn't say she was sick for a weekend, you guys. 18 years she's been this way. You can imagine. After 18 years of being twisted and bent over. Never able to look people in the face. The joy she felt to straighten up. And lift her hands and begin to glorify God, and the excitement and that shot through that crowd as they saw see synagogues were local, these people would have known her, these people would have seen her in the marketplace, these people would have seen her all these years. The joy she felt and the excitement that would have shot through that crowd as they saw what Jesus had done. And yet, joy and excitement are not the only response to this incredible act of mercy, is it? No. And that leads to my final point, number three. Jesus exposes the brutal, it is brutal, the brutal hypocrisy of legalism. Tragically, what you see next, you guys, is that the shout of this crowd, as it probably surged forward to get a closer look at this woman now and what has just happened, was drowned out by a cold, stern voice of authority that tries to rebuke Jesus by reminding the people you've broken one of the rules of our complicated system. Don't do that. Can you imagine? Are you kidding me? Instead of seeing this as an incredible act of mercy and compassion on someone created in the image of God. He sees it as a violation of one of their many complicated. Oh, they'd made it so complicated, you guys. They'd added 640 man-made rules to the existing Bible commands. You couldn't toss something in the air. That was work on a Sabbath. Sabbath. And then, just like people always do, then they had all these end arounds. So hypocritical. You could only walk so far. So, the day before the Sabbath, they would go and put a water pot a half a mile from their house. And if you got there, that was considered home because that's your pot. So, you could go that far. Now, you can go another half mile. And they would just take the day before and set little pots along the way. But don't look back there and say, what is wrong with them? That's us. Give me a system and I'll still work that system to my own advantage and convenience while I lay it as a crushing burden on everyone else. This complicated system that they had put in place, look at me, actually crushed people and kept them from ever knowing God. Is it any wonder Jesus intended To dismantle it. And he's not just confused or rattled you guys. Verse 14 says. He was indignant. Do you know what the word indignant means? It's not just angry. The word indignant means. To be angry. And offended. At something you think. Is unjust. And should not be happening. Can you imagine? What just happened is unjust and should not be happening. In other words, listen to what he says again. He begins to scream over the top of the roar of the crowd and her glorifying God. What's he do? There are six days, there are six days on which to do work. Come and be healed on one of those days and not on the Sabbath day. Are you kidding me? He's acting like you could come on any other day and get healed even when Jesus isn't there. Dude, when's the last time you healed somebody in the synagogue without Jesus? Never. This did not happen without Jesus. That's how blind he is to what is going on. You can come on any other day and be healed. No, you can't. Your system only crushes people and keeps them from God. The very one who has come to solve our biggest problem and bring us to God is here. And you can't see it and you're trying to shut it down. That's how hard the human heart is. And that's how tenaciously the human heart generates and promotes and defends Man-made systems and legalism. Listen to me. This passage brings into focus the fierce conflict between Jesus and the forces of darkness. As well as the legalism that our own human hearts generate and cling to instead of bowing to him as lord. And the way he puts that synagogue leader in his place, cuz he does. The way he puts that synagogue leader in his place is just a snapshot, a precursor, a warm-up to where Jesus is headed in just a few months on the cross. Look at it again in verse 17. As he, the synagogue leader said these things? No, I'm sorry. As he, Jesus said these things, all his adversaries will put to shame now notice what I want you to realize even you realize when Jesus did speak he didn't look at him and say you hypocrite what did he say you hypocrites he knows there are many other in the crowd that think just like he does because they've been taught to think that way and there's not one adversary the synagogue leader there are many adversaries sitting there that saw it just how he did Shouldn't shouldn't have happened shouldn't have happened shouldn't have happened He puts this synagogue leader in his place simply as a precursor to what's coming next. The Greek word right there, that word right there in verse 17, to put to shame means to be humiliated and triumphed over publicly. That's why they hated him. One of their biggest problems was pride, you guys. They loved Having titles. They loved being revered in the marketplace. They loved being given the best seats in the synagogue. They were so prideful. And he, he relentlessly would humiliate them publicly. They hated it. To be humiliated. And triumphed over publicly. But oh you guys. Where Jesus is headed next. Is he is going to humiliate and triumph over our greatest adversary, Satan, Amen. and do it publicly, publicly on the cross in payment for our sins, which is why he cried out from the cross, it is finished. What was, what was need, needed to be done so that we could be right with God through his son, not based on anything we do or bring to the table, is done right now. Let me show you what I'm talking about, because it's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. I want you to see it for yourself. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Let me show you the public humiliation and triumph over not just one synagogue adversary, but our greatest adversary, Satan. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Colossians 2, verse 8. I love how the Bible anticipates the very things we'll get tangled up in and addresses it. Hope you realize, I I tell you, you got to read your Bible, not because, oh, and it's some old book. And every now and then you'll bump into something that's relevant for today. The whole thing is relevant for today because it was written by almighty God. Listen to this in verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to the human traditions according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to christ for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily he is god he is the god man and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority he's not talking about rule and authority over biden and his cabinet That's absolutely true. He's talking about rule and authority over all the spiritual forces of darkness. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through good works. Please shout back at me, no. Fool Through, say it. Amen. Say it louder. Amen. Through faith, through faith, in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. It's when you believe He is who He is, did what He did and ro- rose from the dead. When you put your faith in that, you are set free. You are clean. You are forgiven. You have a robe of righteousness that's not your own. That's the righteousness of Jesus. You have an inheritance that can't be taken or shaken. You have direct access to the throne now, day and night, for mercy and grace. You don't need to be ashamed or be timid. You can come boldly. You're an adopted son or daughter, and it happens through faith in Jesus. Whom he raised from the dead. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us. How many of our transgressions? Oh, say it louder. Past. Present. Future. How did he do it? He didn't just say, oh, never mind. Verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us. You realize you're born with a record of debt. You're born a sinner and then you just continue to prove it the longer you live. And there's this record of sin debt. There's this record of sin debt. There's this record of sin debt that I could never erase. That I could never take care of on my own. How was it taken care of? By canceling. I love the word. The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the say it cross. That's what happened on the cross. The biggest deal of the cross wasn't that Jesus suffered. Tons of people died by crucifixion. Back thing, you guys. He's the only one that, while he died a brutal physical death, the sin debt of every person who would ever put their trust in him was placed on him. That's what caused him to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the most horrific, painful thing that God the Father, for the first time ever, stepped away and turned his back on his son and his son experienced separation from God that we should have experienced forever in hell. His son experienced to be abandoned by God. That was the horror of the cross. Why have you forsaken me? Canceling the debt. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15. Having disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open, say it, shame. Shame. By triumphing over them in him. That moment that Satan thought was his greatest moment as he saw this one he despised hanging on the cross actually became the greatest moment of triumph and humiliation for Satan and the spiritual forces of darkness. Jesus triumphed over them publicly when he said it is finished. Their power to own us and drag us to, hit, to, to hell was robbed from them when he rose from the dead victorious. And there'll be a host of believers, men and women, who simply put their faith in him and are no better than anyone else who's ever lived that shall never taste death or the wrath of God because of Jesus there's no other religion like this, you guys. There's nothing in this world like this. Because here's a savior. And here's a God who did for you what he actually said has to happen. And knew you couldn't do it, so he did it for you. Why? I'll tell you why. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, So that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have, say it, everlasting life. That's the good news of the gospel. If you've become overly familiar with it, if you've gotten lost in our culture right now with other things that they're trying to make you think is the most important, oh my goodness, come back. If you're here and you don't know Christ... Come to Christ today. Come to Christ. Put your faith in Christ. Turn away from whatever you're trusting in and generating that you think sets you aside and will will make it okay. Come to Christ today. Simply put your faith in him right now. The, The prayer can be simple. I believe. God, I believe. Right now, I believe. I believe that your son is Who he says he is. And that he did what the scriptures testify he did. Bam. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to get baptized. You don't have to give this church any money. Right now. Believe. And oh if you're here and you're a child of God. Rejoice. rejoice And remember what you have. Your biggest problem has been solved. I love it when I've got another pastor that gets it. (laughs) Woo. We're going to tag team this thing. Remember that your biggest problem's been solved and you're not going to be here long. They hated him. They'll hate us. And we get to live for him. Tell somebody else this good, good news. Oh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for direct access to your throne. Thank you. Thank you for shattering the power of Satan and darkness. Thank you for dismantling this heart condition we have of thinking we can earn your favor. And thank you for exposing the brutality of legalism. Oh, God, leave us with nothing. Nothing. But the invitation to look to a Savior freely, freely. And to trust in him to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.